confused. Blog Talk Radio. Ground and Pound Radio Show. I am Robert Winfrey. I'm your host for this thing. I apologize for the sound of my typing, but I've gone back and forth. Uh, I just I mistyped a few things in the description box here, and it's going to bug me unless I fix it. So I apologize for that. Okay. Uh, tonight we have a kind of a supercharged show um, because of the UFC scheduling. First up, we will be reviewing UFC 219. That was from the 30th of uh, December, the UFC's last last show of 2017. We will be previewing two cards, actually. Uh, we'll preview Fight Night 124, uh, which is... Yeah, it's just kind of there. Um, we'll get into it in more detail. The main event's not awful. And we will also, because of said scheduling, and I want to go into this very briefly before we get too far into the show, we will also preview UFC 220. Excuse me. Uh, The reason for this is that UFC Fight Night 124 takes place Sunday evening uh, next week, a week from tonight. So I will be covering said event rather than doing the podcast. So we will be off next week while I do that, but that's Saturday, so without a real break, there is UFC 220, and that's a pretty big show, so we'll be previewing that. That is a really top-heavy card. It's a really top-heavy card. Anyway, so we will uh, have both of those things to preview again, and we'll look back at UFC 219. Uh, All right, if you have questions or comments that you would like to get on the air, I'm happy to take them. You can feel free to call in at 323-657-0901. If you would rather leave said questions or comments via a different format, you are more than welcome to leave them on the Rattletch and Broadcasting Network Facebook page where this player is embedded. Excuse me. Or you can tweet me at WinfreyMMA, that's W-I-N-F-R-E-E-M-M-A, and I will do what I can to get you to address those on the air. So, <clears throat> All right, that's, I think, everything I wanted to touch on before we get started. <laughs> I believe, sorry, sorry. I'm, yeah, too much stuff, and I'm, yeah, this is not a good time of year for me generally, so I apologize in advance for 
uh, surliness or absent-mindedness, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. It's just the all the worst things in my life have like happened from that stretch of time post Christmas to Easter. It's it's just the dirt worst. Anyway, uh, so with all that out of the way, here is the panel for this evening. First up, my regular partner in crime, four one one four one one Mania's resident jack of all trades, Jeff Harris is with us again. How are you doing, Jeff? Welcome back, everyone, from the holiday season. I hope everyone's doing well. And just remember, this is how we're going to win. Not by fighting what we hate, saving what we love. And we can only save the lightweight division by stripping Conor McGregor of the UFC lightweight title. Do it, Dana White. In all likelihood. Uh, Also calling in for the first time in a couple of weeks, schedule permitting, we have our East Coast correspondent, Pat Mullen, is with us. How are you doing this evening, Pat? It's a new year. Good evening, gentlemen. I hope all is well. Uh, you know, I'm alive. You're alive. We're alive. Things are happening. Big things popping. Little things stopping. Big show tonight. All right. Uh, on that note, let's go ahead and jump into a review of UFC 219. <clears throat> Excuse me. I apologize also for some of my voice. Different issue than last week. I'm just congested and hacking stuff up. So last week, and last week I just did. Uh, you don't care about my health issues. All right, main event from UFC 219. Uh, Chris Cyborg defeats Holly Holm via unanimous decision. Yeah, the scores here kind of bother me a little bit, but I'll get into that in a second. Uh, 49-46 for Cyborg, which was my scorecard. And then 48-47 twice. Uh, 48-47, I find... I'm not sure how defensible I I find that. Um, The first two rounds... There were some really... uh, Let me start off with this. This was a competitive fight, but it wasn't terribly close. Um... the only round I gave Holly was the second. The first round was close. I know some people gave it to her, but I... I, I can't remember the name of the actual phenomenon that occurs within the human brain, but there is a term for it, where your perception of someone's success is elevated because it exceeds expectations. Like they're doing better than you thought they would. Therefore you think they are winning, which is not the case. Yeah, that's called, that's called Sugar Ray Leonard versus Hagleritis. Fair enough. First diagnosed in uh, 1987 in Nevada. And I, again, like, I don't want to sound like I'm crapping on Holly, but because she, again, this was a very competitive fight, but I think a lot of people were just really surprised she didn't get blown out of the water in the first round, and that's kind of why they leaned towards her. It was competitive, but Cyborg was landing the more substantial shots. Um, In fact, Cyborg outlanded her statistically in all five rounds. The reason I went with Holly in the second was, while Cyborg, A, I wasn't sure all the, I'm not sure I would have given her credit for all the landed strikes that CompuStrike did, but I've had issues with Compu strike in the past for that same reason. And I thought Holly did a better job in the second of controlling and landing the more meaningful shots. 
you could still give that round to Cyborg, and I wouldn't argue with you almost at all. And I think it was round four was the other round that I thought Holly was winning up until the last 30 seconds when Cyborg landed a really significant flurry that was the most relevant thing in that round. So she won that. So again, she won that round. Um, Again, 48-47, I can't really get behind. I was 49-46. I know some people had it 50-45. I know there are some people, certain UFC champions, who shall remain nameless, who actually scored the fight for Holly, which I don't understand at all. Wait, wait, um, wait. Elaborate. Please call out who that was. I have no idea about that. Uh, I think Thug Rose and Yunus had this 3-2 to two for Holly. Sure. Today's time barrier capacity can't be, you know, all that sound to begin with. Fair enough. Um, yeah, again, I found this fight interesting in a lot of respects. Um, Cyborg showed off some really solid... I hate trying to judge Cyborg's abilities in a lot of respects because she was beating up a a lot of her opponents are suboptimal opposition and have been for a few years. Uh, So it becomes hard to get an actual gauge on what she's capable of. Here she showed off whole dimensions to her game that she hadn't really had to utilize before. Her counter game was much more on point. Uh, Her footwork and her cage cutting were pretty solid. She kept was able to kind of keep Holly closer to the fence than Holly would have liked. Uh, you know, there was a period of time when Cyborg was overly reliant on punching power and physical prowess. And I think those days are, they're not gone because she still has that advantage, but she's got a really solid technical game that she can get into when she needs to nowadays. And honestly, I find that slightly more terrifying. Uh, this was Holly's hands down the best opponent Cyborg has ever faced the closest would have been her first fight with Marlos Kunin I mean I know the second fight went longer but Kunin was was a much more inner prime fighter for their first bout and she rose to the occasion tremendously I think it's it's kind of a shame that there's no that there's not a whole lot of truly elite competition for her to fight because she can clearly hang with the elite and it's again we're we're kind of stuck in the awkward position where there aren't a lot of women for her to compete with because I I would love to see her what she can do when she's actually pushed from a competition standpoint. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you. Do you have anything you want to touch on with the fight itself and uh, you know where? What do you think we do next from here? Do we go with Megan Anderson or do we do Amanda Nunes? And all reports seem to point out the fact that it will likely be Amanda Nunes versus Cyborg next. That seems to be the fight the UFC and Dana White wants. Amanda Nunes wants that fight. Um, and honestly, there isn't really a clear cut contender. Uh, for uh, Amanda Nunez's title right now anyway, so you might want to just go ahead and book that fight. Um, UFC might be in the cyborg business, but they are not in the women's featherweight business. Look at the rankings. There are no, there are no really other active uh, featherweights 
for the UFC Women's Weight Division. There, there, there is an It's the Cyborg Memorial UFC title. That's all this is. So it's a <laughs> way to have Cyborg in the UFC, give her five, and give her uh, a ceremonial belt. That's all this is. This isn't a division. This isn't a real title. It's a fake title. Cyborg weighs for the Cyborg Championship? It's the Cyborg Championship, just like Conor McGregor is a fake champion holding a fake belt. He's a puppet. Ah, uh, the old Rumbleweight jokes. All right, Jeff, I, sorry, Pat, I didn't get, I don't think you were on when we previewed this fight. So what were your expectations going in and you know, what thoughts you, did you have on the action? You know, one of the things I said to you going into this was I heavily favored Cyborg. But the way to beat Cyborg has always been to attack her up the middle with straight punches, push kicks, and especially one of Holly's favorite weapons, which is a push kick to the thigh. Um, she throws that really well, and she used it before. If Holly would utilize those and be defensively minded, she stood a chance to win. What I saw was Holly not really employ anywhere near enough of that because she still wants to just sit back and counter. And when an opponent doesn't immediately give that to her, she's kind of lost. And on top of that, Cyborg, I think, looked tremendously better from a technical standpoint than we are used to seeing her. I think in part that's due to her training with professional Muay Thai fighters uh, who do nothing but Muay Thai. And on top of that, training with one of the best female boxers in the world, Clarissa Shields, who really had very complimentary things to say about Cyborg's uh, boxing abilities in the ring. What Cyborg did here was judge distance extremely well. She basically looked at the patterns of Holly's movement after a strike to be able to catch her with that big right hand, which she used often. I don't think she utilized enough kicks. I think more kicks from Cyborg would have really opened up Holly potentially to be stopped. From Holly, I saw some glaring mistakes, such as when she did back Cyborg up to the cage to smother her offense and backed out. Instead of backing out to the center of the octagon where she could have had a better control of distance, she would back all the way out to the other side of the octagon, which would allow Cyborg to advance, get comfortable, and control that distance. And that was a huge tactical mistake on her end. On top of that, her attacks were too few and far between. When you're getting countered by good right hands because you're moving once to one side constantly, and then you don't throw a left hand to stop that or utilize leg kicks to discourage movement that way, you're going to continue to be hit. And this is the problem for Holly when she falls behind in fights. She's not a natural aggressor and can't fight that way comfortably. And she just doesn't have the firepower to stop good opponents late. This isn't Petch Cohea, who isn't all that good posturing and preening and leaving herself wide open for a head kick. This isn't Ronda Rousey, who doesn't know the first thing about striking. This is a girl who knows how to fight, does it well, and can take a, a shot if she needs to. Holly has always been a push puncher which is to say that she doesn't put a lot of power into her punches. She doesn't utilize a lot of weight distribution between her hips to punch with force. She pushes her punches. She gives the half-hearted kiyas when she punches, which you'd hear in an aerobic kickboxing class. She isn't a strong enough striker to threaten a stoppage unless she really pours everything out. And when she does that, she leaves herself open to counterattacks, which is how she got hurt late in the fight. Yeah, and... Very briefly, your thoughts on 
apparently Megan Anderson's had having some visa issues that's kind of preventing that fight, and Megan Anderson being the only other elite, genuine featherweight like in the world. Uh, I mean, uh, oh, those on. of you who may not have elite, seen elite, elite is arguable at best. The call, I mean, I, I mean, I would. I would agree with Jeff's point on that. If, I, if I'm booking Cyborg's future, I try to line up the fight with Amanda Nunes. If I can't get that, I let her go and take a fight in lion fights or kickboxing or what, what have you, like she previously did when she fought uh, Jarena Bears. I mean, uh, here's uh, – Megan Anderson's record is 8-2. and two. I'd hardly – I mean, she's, she lost to Cindy Dandois. So it's not, very, very early in her career. All right. So I mean, I mean, I, I mean. That rematch she's, today she's, goes horribly differently. It's not what I would consider uh, an elite record, Robert. Her biggest wins are over Charmaine Tweet, Amanda Bell, Peggy Morgan. I've never even heard of most of these women except for Charmaine Tweet. How is this? I, I mean, this is not as as what I would describe an elite level fighter. I'm sorry. She's an elite level fighter in the division by virtue of the division sucking. This is now, like Holly I'll, I'll freely being the acknowledge that. MMA fighter of all time. No, like, like if you can name another half decent featherweight fighter in the world, I'll pull, I'll rank her ahead of Megan I Anderson. I can't. I can't. That's the point. But I, I'm the one saying this is a fake division. It's not a real division. A, it wasn't a real a, division when they when they booked Gina Carano versus Cyborg, which I attended live almost nine years ago. There was no division there. They did it. No, there's so they not a lot of bodies. There really aren't. They booked the fight at 145 so they, could, so, they, so they wouldn't have to worry about them missing weight and so they could put a belt on the line. That's why. Well, that and, again, Cyborg. I want to bring something up before we move on. This is the last thing I want to say about this. I know people aren't. I know there are people who aren't fans of Cyborg, and I'm certainly not here to try and convince you who to cheer for. That's entirely up to you, by all means. But there, I, I, I constantly forget that there are people out there who think that she can make 135, and that I, it, to me, it's just like the dumbest thing in the world. She physically can't make 135. That's the long and the short of it. And it, I mean, I mean, is anyone you know bitching at Jose Aldo for not fighting Dominic Cruz at bantamweight? Like that's the same type of thing here for my money. It's not a physical reality for her. Such is life. Are we gonna get like? I, are we gonna get like the red, the red belt scenario where she has to fight with like a limb tied behind her back? I don't know, but. Like there are, I, I always forget that there are those people out there who believe that she kind of like malingered and didn't really want to fight Ronda. Like, uh, it, it's just the dumbest thing in the world. Uh, Ronda didn't want to, to fight Dave her. Meltzer, something I just wanted to throw in, according to Dave Meltzer's uh, Wrestling Observer Radio. Uh, SBM, by the way, everybody. Uh, they're looking at uh, 350,000 or more buys for this show. So That's apparently, actually a solid number. Yeah, I mean, considering the kind of year UFC had last year in terms of pay-per-view, and, I mean, that's probably one of the higher buy rates to get outside of GSP versus Bisping 
Yeah. I would say that's a successful pay per view. Yeah. All things, those are, yeah. For, all things considered, considering they lost a couple fights for that card, and considering you know you know, Cyborg at the time was a relatively unproven pay per view draw. Those are respectable numbers. So at least it means like, you know, Cyborg is somewhat of a mid level draw for the UFC. I mean, I brought this up like that's the benefit a... here for them. Yeah, I mean, I brought this up. Somebody mentioned it, and I don't know if someone mentioned it in commentary if this was on Twitter. But there's a surprising amount of fandom around three of the four people in the main and co-main for this fight. Uh, Cyborg has a legitimate fan base. Holly still has a legitimate fan base. And and this seems as good a segue as any. There's a Khabib has a has a massive fan base in his part of the world specifically. I think it's grow. I think it's growing even more after this fight. He's got exponentially. like, he's got like. I mean, he's got like two million followers on Instagram, for whatever that's worth. He's also, <laughs> again, for whatever that's worth. He also does like ma- major appearances, uh, but a lot of it is limited to in and around his native area. He does a lot of appearances in Dagestan. I don't know right. about Chechnya, but he does stuff in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. And he, he gets mobbed. He has a huge international following. Yeah. Huge. He, he is a significant fan, especially amongst, uh, you know, ethnic... I forget what the ethnicity is. It was a really fascinating um, piece I read he's about... Muslim, that's his religion. Um, but he's... I can't... Again, like, he's from Dagestan, but I can't remember the... Because Russia covers so much area... Rather than refer to themselves as Russian by nationality, there's a lot of uh, referring to yourself by your ethnic background. Right. Yeah, uh, you have uh, people who, who identify as Slovak or what have you. Uh, Chechen or I think it's uh, Odlans. I, I, I can't remember for the life of me. I apologize yeah, for there's that. Internal, but... There's internal groups within the what would be called the overarching Russian or Soviet satellite that take pride in a certain ethnic foundation. The same way if you're from a particular neighborhood in a city, that's how you identify. It's very similar. It's the same kind of concept, all tribal in nature. Yeah, it's and he amongst those fans from like the Northern Caucasus Mountain region, uh, he is like God. Um, but on to his actual fight. In your co-main event, Khabib Nurmagomedov beats Edson Barboza so badly. Uh, unanimous decision. The scores were as follows: thirty twenty-five, thirty twenty-five, and thirty twenty-four. I was thirty twenty-five on the night. I need to say this since I've actually been able to rewatch the fight. Had Comcast not given me issues during the third round, that would have been a ten-eight as well. More marginal, but it would have been that way. Uh, this was. I I picked Khabib. I. Ergo kind of accept, expected him to win. I did not expect this to be this lopsided. Um, this was... Because, I mean, I know Edson Barboza's good. Edson Barboza's a fantastic fighter. And Khabib made him look almost like he didn't know what he was doing. This was... This was a he complete got blowout. He got head kicks, but he ate those head kicks for breakfast. I mean, 
Yeah, he Every, he had worn him down to that point where those head kicks were not the what was it Terry Edom that he finished with a swing back kick in that highlight reel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah, he wheel kicked Terry Adam, and Adam retired one fight later. Something like that. It was he. He ended that poor guy's career. <laughs> uh, but yeah, this was this was just a mauling. Like if you've ever seen like nature documentaries about bear eating deer, that's what this looked like. This was this was a master class in terms of ride control passing, interweaving strikes with what you're doing on the mat, and just dogged ferocity that Khabib brings into the cage with him. I, 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 again, I expected him to win, but I was still left at a loss for words. I mean, Edson Barboza, after the first round of this fight, looked like he'd already been in a, in, in a significant three-round fight. It's uh, been a 30-23 fight, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, I think 30-25 is generous. Yeah. Again, like, had I... had Because I, I can only score based on what I saw, and I had issues in the third round. I actually missed part of the first as well. Had I been able to watch it in its entirety as it played out live, that third round would have been a 10-8 from me, so that, which gets us to 30-24. Uh, this was shockingly one-sided because, again, Edson Barboza is a world-class lightweight. He's n- he is not some scrub who doesn't know what he's doing. He has beaten exceptional fighters. He has knocked out exceptional fighters. He had an extraordinarily competitive fight with Tony Ferguson. Like, that, was a, that, that fight went back and forth before Tony finished him. That was a great fight. I, when I, I was at a 24, I did not disagree with it. Yeah, I, I, I was at a loss for words. Pat, I wanted to give you the first crack here because you pegged Khabib as a future champion some years ago, and you and I were talking a little bit during this fight, and I think you compared him to uh, Sergei Kovalev. Yeah. He's, he's just a guy who demoralizes you as the fight goes on. And Vasily Lomachenko is the guy, is, you know, the guy who people compare him to initially. I'm not going to go that far because certain technical aspects of his game are not the level of Lomachenko's in his respective sport. But he's very good in a lot of them, much like Kovalev is in his sport. And he breaks people down to a destructive level and talks to them while he does it. You know, they say fighting is a game of inches. Well, he knows the inches better than maybe anybody I've ever seen. He can correctly gauge where you are on the ground, what position he needs to take, what the best way to get you vulnerable is. On top of that, while he's a long and lanky guy, he doesn't always have that quality of striking that you would expect from a guy who can use distance to his advantage. But what he does with that is he throws unorthodox strikes to close distance because so many guys react to that by backing straight up against the cage. That's where the beauty of his game lies. People were, sh- were shocked that he was throwing flying knees and mixing up his striking attacks so much. And winning the exchanges just because he had Boza, Edson Barboza not only confused by what he was doing, but because he was able to put Barboza down and work him over, Barboza didn't have what he needed to stand up and fight effectively. 
Jeff brought up how Barboza was able to land the kick and Khabib ate it without a problem. Well, part of that is because so much of the fight was taken out of Barboza when he was on the ground that he didn't have the same snap, the same speed, the same power that he would normally have on that kick. Also, Khabib was probably able to see it coming a little better and brace himself a little better on top of that. This is as complete a performance as you'll see in a fight from somebody. And the fact that it happened against a legitimately high-level opponent in what is arguably the second-best division in in the UFC right now, that is outstanding on so many levels. There's times where it's been frustrating to follow Khabib's career with weight issues, with nutrition issues, with health issues and injuries. And then he turns in a performance like this, which trumps even what he did to Michael Johnson because of the level of opponent we're talking about here. Put this man and Tony Ferguson together to fight for the legitimate lightweight championship. Now, please. Uh, I wish that fight could happen, but it can't. Uh, sorry. For those of you who may not understand my what I mean by that, they have tried, I believe, four times to book Tony versus Khabib over the last, like, two, three years. And every time, it's fallen through. Um, the first time Khabib suffered a knee, uh, I can't remember if it was a knee injury or a more minor injury. The second time Tony Ferguson had a lung issue. Uh, the third time, I think that was when Khabib had his major knee injury. Uh, then Tony Ferguson fell out with a relatively minor injury. Then Khabib had the weight issue like they have tried this. This bout is as cursed as Ian McCall's career. It just won't happen. Which aggravates me to no end because I would love it so, so much. I so want to see those two fight. All right, Jeff, your thoughts on this fight? You mentioned that you had this as a, a more lopsided than a lot of people did, even in favor of Khabib. Quite frankly, I was appalled that Edson Barboza's corner let him answer the third round. 100% agree, Jeff. I'm appalled that a towel wasn't thrown in because he was just getting beaten for the sake of being beaten. And where was his corner? I mean, where was his corner in all of that? Just letting him take that beating he did not need to take. Um, and possibly taking either years off his career or, heck, even his life for that matter. As amazing a performance as I thought this was by Nurmagomedov, I mean, to allow an extended beatdown like that, I think, was, was appalling. To me, this was not like Chris Cyborg versus Holly Holm. Holly Holm, at least for her credit, I feel like she was in every round. I feel she was answering every round. And in some of those rounds, even though I think I only might have given her one one round, some of those rounds I thought were only marginally in favor of Cyborg. For example, the fifth round, which I did score for Cyborg, if Holm had done a little more, I think she could have won that fifth round. She didn't, though. Somewhat ironically, would have won the fight. That, That was a much more competitive fight than this fight. This fight was not competitive. Um... And I think there, there need, some, we need, besides the weight cutting and everything else we're debating about this sport, I think there needs to be a debate about what the corner's role is in, in saving their fighters if they're really just not winning and not being competitive in a fight like this, whether it's three rounds or five rounds. That's mainly what I have to say. 
I'd agree with that. We've I've yelled at corners in the past. I, I do think it's a discussion that needs to be had. Oh, and uh, my next thing is um, we are going to see Tony Ferguson versus Nurmagomedov, and we are going to see El Kukui, the best lightweight fighter on the planet. He's going to win the fight, and even if he gets put on his back, he's going to be very comfortable there because he beats people off of his back, and Nurmagomedov has never fought an opponent like that. Edson Barboza is a striker, not a grappler. Okay, his brown belt uh, under under Ricardo Almeida is meaningless. It's a Mick Black belt. Ferguson is going to have his way with Nurmagomedov, whether he's on his back or on the feet. I do again. I really hope they actually fight again. I I think that bout is just cursed. I they will schedule it and it will fall apart. And it's a crying shame because it's probably the best lightweight fight of the last, like, five or six years is those two. If not ever, I'd really... You know, i got to think about that for a second. I genuinely struggle to think of a better UFC lightweight fight on paper or in practice than Tony versus Khabib. I agree. I'll, I'll really have to think about that and see if I have a better idea later. Um, all right. <clears throat> Next up, and the only other fight I really kind of have something to say about, uh, Dan Hooker defeats Mark Jacquezi via guillotine choke in the third round. Uh, one of only two finishes on this entire card. Uh, the other was in the first fight of the night. Um, I want you to, for those of you who may not have seen this fight or didn't necessarily think about it this way, this was a really, really good demonstration of how to beat a devastating and explosive striker if you can't match their power or their speed. Because Dan Hooker is not a powerful striker. You don't want to get hit by him, but he's not a lights-out kind of guy necessarily. Dan Hooker is also not a fast fighter. I'd say that he's slow, but you know he does not have a lot of explosion, a lot of quick-twitch muscles. That's, that's not his game. But he's a very technical and a very analytical fighter. And he will pick up on your tells, on your openings, and he will make you pay for them. In this fight, he spent the first couple of rounds... I think there were two things that happened. One is that Mark Jacquezi, being mindful of his cardio issues, didn't fight the way he has fought in the past. He was not terribly aggressive in the first round. He was just kind of feeling things out and didn't really want to blow himself up over that five minutes because Dan Hooker's a very tough guy. During that five minutes, Dan Hooker got a pretty significant read on Mark Jacquezi. He had Jacquezi biting on every little twitch of his shoulders or hips after for the second and third round, well, what there was of a third. And every time he would show something, Jacquezi would respond in exaggerated not exaggerated, that, that's maybe not the wrong word, but disproportionately to a feint. Hooker would twitch, and Jacquezi would half-spin. Hooker would kind of show maybe a little more than just a twitch, and he would throw a complete spinning back kick that subsequently misses because Hooker was fainting, not actually coming in. And he used the whole first two rounds to both wear down Jacquezi that way rather than, you know, clinch fighting, but getting him to expend energy and getting a complete read on his game. So when he shoots a desperation 
double in the second after an exchange didn't quite go his way. He grabs a choke, and that's all she wrote for the Bone Crusher. Uh, I don't know what you do exactly with Dan Hooker next, but there's a lot about his game that's going to trouble guys, especially if you overlook him. Uh, all right, that, that's really all I had, because I found that deeply interesting, just the way he was able to constantly bait Jacquesi into overreacting to every little thing that he did. And it's a really, really great way to fight guys who fight like Mark Jacquesi does. You get them to overcommit to nothing. And then they both wear themselves out, and you get a read on them if, you, if you're good at making reads. And Dan Hooker's really good at making reads. Uh, Jeff, I'll stick with you for this one. Do you have anything you'd like to add or anything about this fight you wanted to bring up? I thought it was a decently technical fight and a, and a good win for Dan Hooker, which I predicted. All right. Pat, uh, what would you like to bring up? Anything you have to, you know, any thing you'd like to say, anything you had on my observations, so on and so forth? Uh, I was just happy there was a finish. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, if you want a slightly more in-depth look at some of what Hooker did, uh, I think in Jack Slack's breakdown of this event, he devoted some time to talking about it and what he, what he liked. So if I overlapped him, that was because I read it, because I always read his stuff. Uh, next up, Carla Esparza defeats Cynthia Calvillo via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. This fight sucked. Um. That's really all I have. I do want to say this. Calvillo has a good scramble game and a good, not great, but good wrestling game. And that's how she won the first round. And for some reason, and I'm blaming both her and her corner, which was, I believe, Justin Buckholz and a couple of other guys from Team Alpha Male. They actually told her between rounds... Don't grapple with her. The actual words said to a fighter who won a round because of superior grappling. No, you, you, you clearly win in this area. Don't go there. Let's play 50-50 trading right hands because neither of us knows how to strike to save our ass. She deserved to lose that fight. Her corner should be ashamed of themselves. That was, the, that was some of the dirt worst advice I have heard between rounds. Like, it's one thing to lie to your fighter to keep their confidence higher to know how to know how to tailor what you're saying to how they receive information best. Sometimes you don't tell a guy they're losing rounds because you don't want them to panic. That's fine. Like, as long as you know you're lying to them as a coach, sure. Like, whatever keeps them in the game. Giving them the absolute worst advice possible is something else entirely. Uh, this was shockingly bad. And Buckles is not a bad corner man. I don't know why he decided this was a good idea. But they really did her a disservice because she listened to them. And it cost her that fight. Now, uh, that's really all I have here. Um, Pat, I'll stick with you. Anything you wanted to say here? Generally, the only way you can lose a fight to Carla Esparza is if you're not a, a grappler and you elect to wrestle with her. Somehow, Calvillo found a way to lose a fight to Carla Esparza without wrestling her. 
So this was atrocious. This was a, this was a curse to my eyes, and I never want to see anything like it again. Jeff, your thoughts? This can be a good learning experience for Cynthia Calvillo. She needs to accept this defeat, uh, learn from it, and, and it can make her a better fighter. But she shouldn't act like um, she won this fight because, quite frankly, she didn't. Um, and um, I don't know. I don't know. I, I thought she was – I thought it was weird that um, she was having – more success with the grappling than Esparza and tried to strike with her and was getting outstruck by her, but uh. yeah, just just horrible decision making. Uh all right, and I kicking mean, off the But I mean look, she's still a young fighter and early in her career. I mean, this was only her seventh career fight. Um and again, I think this could be a good learning experience for her. I mean I mean because every great fighter loses at some point, and it's what you do after that loss, I think, that determines how good a fighter you can be. Here's, here's the thing with Calvillo in this fight. She, she was in the first round and clearly won it with superior grappling. There was nobody questioning it. So immediately when Buckhole told her, do not grapple anymore, we're all kind of left there scratching our heads saying, why is he doing that? She very clearly was able to outgrapple Esparza, and that's really all Esparza's got. So they told her to stand and strike with her, and Calvillo revealed she has no striking ability at this point. None. You know how? Because she got outstruck by Carla Esparza, who could not do anything on a heavy bag that would be technically sound. That's just how it is. But there's also a thing here with Calvillo where – you know definitively when you've won a round big, and you know when you've lost a round or at least not been as successful as before. She needs to take that into her own hands. A loss for her is not a loss for her corner. It's a loss for her. It gets pinned on her record at the end of the day. Justin Buckholt doesn't really get affected by that. It's her who ends up with the, the one in the loss column. And she's got to have better instincts than what she has showed in this fight. Maybe this is how she gets there, but to be realistic, you know when you're winning a round significantly, and you know when you're not doing as much or even losing a round after that. You know it as a fighter intrinsically. I was really surprised that after that second round, she didn't try to grapple at all in the third. I mean, if you just want to get five minutes to kind of work your striking, I mean, Carlos Spars is about as safe an opponent as you're going to get for that. But to go into that third round, potentially one and one, and you can't, I mean, there's nothing else, you can't feel good about it, and then not really definitively go back to what, to how you actually can win this fight, like you know you can win, that, that was really, really, really shocking to me. All right, and kicking off the main card, Neil Magny defeated Carlos Condit via unanimous decision. 30-27, This was a deeply and profoundly uninteresting fight. I have... I want to say this. Like, the fight itself, I have nothing to say. Like, it was just kind of there. I want to say this about Carlos Condit. I do not believe that Carlos Condit is shot as a fighter. BJ Penn is shot. Carlos was not a heavy bag like BJ Penn has become. Carlos was still kind of trying to do stuff. He was still throwing flurries. Uh, he you know, 
took advantage of some stuff in the third round while while Neil Magny was coasting. Like th- there was stuff that he was kind of doing. He is not. I do not have an ethical question about booking him to engage in a fist fight. But I have no desire to see it. Uh, Condit is just... When I say he's done, I don't mean that he can't fight at the UFC level. I don't mean that he can't win at the UFC level. I am relatively confident that there are fighters in that division he can beat. But I think the totality of his career has caught up to him. I think that's the deficiencies in his game, and that's the years and miles and wars he's been in. He's been in some of the best fights ever. But that that is not free. There's a cost to be paid with that, and I think it's finally catching up with him. I, I Again, I don't think he is done in the sense that he can't fight anymore, but... I have absolutely no desire to watch him fight. It's not that he lost to Neil Magny. Neil Magny is a very consistent fighter. And while I think we've probably seen his ceiling, his ceiling's pretty darn high. Like He's a top ten guy. That's nothing to sneeze at. But it was more the way it played out that makes me kind of think the best days are well behind Carlos and... If he fights out this year, this one might be his last because I don't think he's in a position to be one of the uh, – I'm not entirely sure. I think Carnage one of the ten best in the world at the moment. He'll be fighting lower 15 guys, if not the unranked. And, again, he can probably win some of those, but I, I have no desire to watch him fight anymore after this performance. Uh I thank him sincerely for the years and memories because I got some great ones associated with his fights, but I don't want to see him fight anymore. Uh, Pat, I'll stick with you for a second. You've seen a lot of fighters come and go. Um, again, like, what's your assessment of Condit coming off of the layoff and turning in the performance that he did and your thoughts on the fight itself? You know, I question how much Carlos still wants to do this there really wasn't a defined sense of urgency in him. There wasn't a strong activity level like we've seen from him in the past. And you can maybe say some of that's the layoff, but in reality, he's come off layoffs before and not looked this uh, lackluster in his effort. And not to discount Neil Magny, but Neil Magny is not the type of guy who takes that sort of fight out of you. Neil Magny gives you plenty of opportunity to throw at him and work him over while he's patiently waiting for something to develop. And when Condit's best responses to things are diving low and trying for a knee bar that's not there and not close and doesn't really know how to handle Neil Magny, it's one of those things where you have to question how much effort did he put in in camp? Is he still in a position in his head where he feels he can do this and become a world champion anymore? I don't think he believes it. I think this fight was indicative of where his head is at and where it should, and it's at where it shouldn't be. And I don't think it's a good idea for him to keep fighting if this is the kind of effort he's going to put forth in his training and in his actual fights. 
you got to remember he's been fighting a very long time and has had a lot of very physical give and take bouts. It may be time for him to hang him up. And I, I would agree with your assessment that he's not a shot fighter. He still has enough to beat guys who aren't close to his level. And he can beat those guys without having to pull out maximum effort. But those top 15 guys, he might be the gatekeeper to see who gets in now. All right, Jeff, your thoughts on this one, and a lot of credit to you for accurately predicting this one. Uh, I was laughing at the MMA uh, fighting pre-show when Sean Al-Shadi and Ariel Hawani were talking about the blood gods and how how great it was for Carlos Condit to be fighting again and how he was basically going to destroy Neil Magny, or that's what you would have thought watching that <laughs> pre-show. Um, he, I predicted Neil Magny to win this fight. Double down even further after I saw a video from MMA fighting. And it was like 20 minutes of Esther Lynn, who's a MMA fighting's like resident photographer and Carlos Condit, like having lunch and just casually talking. And the reason I'm mentioning this is because he was talking about like, you know, his nitro brew, coffee business and his medical sales equipment business. The last thing on Carlos Condit's mind was a fight with Neil Magny. He is completely and totally uh, and mentally checked out of fighting. He, when he was fighting Magny, it looked like it was the last place he wanted to be. And it was not, he didn't, I agree. He didn't look like a shot fighter. He looked like a guy who didn't want to be in the octagon. He was miles away from it. He was thinking about getting back to his little coffee shop and doing some more uh, nitro coffee brews. That's what he wanted to be doing. He was. He took this fight to get another paycheck to, pop, to to give him some more cushion for his other side businesses. Carlos Condit is now one and four, and I feel like he had the fight with Lawler. Maybe he should have won that fight. I think that's I think there's a strong argument he should have won the title there. After that, his heart has not been in fighting anymore. He is checked out of this sport and that's why I think he shouldn't be fighting again. And um you can I don't know. I'm just still laughing at that pre show. Not that I have anything against Errol Hawani or Sean Al but I I'm just still laughing at just how I don't know. I knew I knew this I knew this was going to be the result. And say what you want about Neil Magny, he is not the type of fighter you want to come in with that kind of attitude. You cannot Neil Magny, he may not be the future UFC champion, Robert, but he's not a guy you want to coast against either. He's not a guy you want to go in and fight on cruise control like Carlos Condit did cuz he will beat you, and that's exactly what he did. Don't take Neil Magny lightly because he is a future UFC champion. I'm not convinced he's going to become champion, but like I said, he's, he's certainly nobody to, to trifle with. Um, he wants a top five guy next. I say, put him and Colby Covington in there together. Maybe, you know what? Maybe he doesn't become champion, but he's still a high level gatekeeper. And, And every division, every division needs a fighter like Neil Magny because he, because Basically, beating Neil Magny at this point means you're, you're, you should probably be fighting for the title. 
Yeah, I, again, I I don't hate him and Colby Covington, assuming the timing works out, or him and uh, Kamaru Usman has a fight coming up. And assuming he wins, and I tend to think he will, I I like him against either of those guys. Um, there's still some questions about the top of welterweight with Woodley recovering from shoulder surgery, and well, then presumptive fight, number one, the presumptive number one contender. He could fight Ponzinibbio, Ponzinibbio or uh, or let's see, there was a, or Mosfidal. I like both those. Hey, wait, has he fought Mosfidal? No, I don't think he's fought Mosfidal. That's another so, yeah, interesting those, he's one. Already, he's already fought. He's already fought Maya. So so either Mosfidal or, or or Usman if he wins or Ponzinibbio. All those would be fresh fights, you know, and they're all in similar spots in the rankings. Yeah, I mean, again, the the presumptive number one contender is a guy who ran over him like a truck. So there's not a whole lot for him to, there's not a whole lot to be gained by rematching RDA for him at this point, because I think RDA would just run him over again, but that's a whole other discussion. Yeah. All but right, as, I mean, like we have the whole thing with Woodley, you know, is Woodley even going to fight this And now we have, but that's a whole other. It, there's, there's a lot going on with that right now. Um, all right. That was the main card as for the prelims. Mikhail Oleksajak defeats Khalil Roundtree via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. This was awful. Um, this was crappy, crappy light heavyweights. It is the worst division in the UFC. These are the bottom of the barrel, and they didn't even have the common courtesy to finish the fight. Um, Khalil Roundtree sucks. He should not be in the UFC at this point. The fact that he lost this fight is like proof of that. Uh, Miles Jury defeated Rick Glenn via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the board. Uh, Jury was just better than Glenn everywhere. And, nah, again, he was just better than him everywhere. There wasn't a whole lot else to say. Marvin Vittori and Omar Yakhmedov fought to a majority draw. There was one 29-28 for Vittori. The other two were 28-28. I was 28-28. I know there are people out there who liked this fight. I am not one of them. Um, this wasn't boring, but it wasn't good. Uh, two sloppy guys engaged in a sloppy fight. Got a, a result that I believe is correct, but just eh, no, no interest. Um, at flyweight, Mateus Nicolau defeated Louis Smolka of unanimous decision 30-26, 30 30-26, 30 and 30-25. This fight especially the first round, is a really good case study for why you throw straight punches. Because if you throw a straight punch as your opponent throws a circular punch, yours will get there first. Nikolaou just had more oomph on his shots, and he was throwing straighter punches. So every time he and Smolka would throw at the same time, he would land first, he would land harder, and the... He dropped Smolka two or three times in that first round. It was this was a really really solid performance from Nikolau. Who's he's got hand speed anyway, but throwing it properly gets gets your punches to the target even quicker. Um, he might be someone to pay attention to at flyweight. And Smolka has now lost four or five in a row. And boy, does he need to rebound. And on fight pass, Tim Elliott scored our only one of only again only two finishes on the night when he choked out Mark De La Rosa. Uh, this is 
Uh, Montana, formerly Montana Stewart. This is her husband, I believe. Uh, got him with an anaconda choke set up from the assassin position in the second round. Tim Elliott is pretty darn good, and Mark De La Rosa isn't. That's kind of where that one falls. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you. Any burning desires from that set of prelims? Anything you want to touch on? Nope. Pat, you have vitriol to spew, or have you uh, <laughs> anything else, or you know, praise to heap? Uh, no, this entire prelim card was horseshit. Uh, in the worst way possible. Uh, but but I will bring up an issue in terms of promotion. What were they trying to accomplish by not only booking <clears throat> fights that are not necessarily not only appealing in how they played out, but not really appealing on paper in any way to try to get people to buy a pay-per-view that this is pr- supposed to promote? On top of that, I saw virtually no promotion for the pay-per-view card during the prelim card on free TV. They did not push any of the fights that were happening on that card, most especially Holly versus Cyborg, with any sense of urgency or by this. It was a poor showcase of the lack of depth in certain divisions, particularly light heavyweight. It was also a poor effort on the promotional end, because if we if we got 350,000 buys for this, slight, slight promotion of this in any way may have gotten it to 400,000. Uh, they did lose Gokhan Saki off the prelims. He was supposed to fight Khalil. Yeah, yeah, that was supposed to be Roundtree and Saki, which I was so sad when that fell through because war Saki, but still. Yeah, Khalil Roundtree uh, sucks anyway. I'm well aware of that. Believe me. Um, I mean, I don't no, it, think. I mean, look. Ever since they did, ever since I, I, ever since the transition to, I think WMEIMG, I don't think they've, I don't think the marketing team has been bringing their A game, and I think they fired a lot of the the old people at Zufa who knew what they were doing. Yeah, it's embarrassing. Yeah. Uh, the, the only good thing, uh, sorry, the only good thing promotionally in terms of, you know, hype or commercials or packages or whatnot, there were a couple for this card, none of which actually aired on the prelims, but there were a couple that were pretty good. The, uh, the spot narrated by Carl Weathers for UFC 220 is actually solid. Um, if you guys haven't seen that one yet, it is floating around there on the internet. Uh, Anyway, that was UFC 219. Thank you to everyone who stopped by and followed along with my coverage. Uh, Thanks for putting up with Comcast crapping out on me on a couple of occasions. Thankfully, they weren't major. And thank you for dealing with my... Again, this is not my therapy podcast, but I have issues. I make no secret of it. And this time of year, they do tend to be exacerbated, so I... If that starts bleeding through, and it probably will, uh, thank you for bearing with me. That's all I can say. Uh, All right. Oh, boy. Next Sunday, week from tonight, UFC Fight Night 124. I really don't have much to say about this card. This is not a very good card. Uh, But, in fact, you know, yeah. I think we're just going to do the first two fights, which won't take long, and then just do burning desires for the rest. 
This is really nice. Oh, I got a burning desire for the rest. I'm well aware, and Paige Van Zandt is in the third fight rather than the top two. Thank you for the pun. Uh, All right, anyway, the main event, Jeremy Stevens versus Duho Choi. This begins the last year that we will have the Korean Superboy in the UFC. Um, Which makes me sad, because I like Duho Choi. He had a really good run up through the UFC to this point, uh, knocked out all of his his first three fights, four, three. His first three, he finished them in the first round. He's got some really interesting punching techniques, solid power, had a great fight with Cub Swanson, a very nearly fight of the year. For a lot, for a lot of people, it was fight of the year. Had a minor injury, um, and this is uh, – oh, sorry, I – Bearing the lead here. The reason this is the last year we're going to have him in the UFC is starting in 2018, his mandatory military service comes due. So we will be losing him for, I believe, two years while he does that, uh, which is yeah, admirable in so many ways. It, but as a fan, it just kind of sucks. We saw it a while back with uh, Korean Zabi, Chan Sung Young. He went through that recently. Yeah, well... Military service is mandatory in South Korea, and Duo Choi is South Korean. As for this fight, uh, Jeremy Stevens has a reputation for, you know, violent punching power that I really am not sure the evidence bears out. He has, hang on, because I'm gonna if I'm gonna bring this up, he has one, two, three. He only has five finishes in the UFC, and he's been with the UFC for since 2007. I'm not saying the guy's got pillow fists or anything, but the reputation he has is not borne out by evidence, and. To be fair, I've bought into that myself, so that's on me, too. And he's a good fighter. I mean, again, I'm not trying to bag on the guy, but... I question how this will go once he and Choi get close and start throwing, because Choi does have documented power. Um, Stevens is the second best guy he's ever fought behind Swanson, That which is a thing. Stevens has done a lot to diversify his game recently. Uh, he's added a really solid kicking game. And I don't think we've seen Choi really have to deal with a strong kicker in a while. Yeah, this is, this is almost purely emotional for me, but I am kind of leaning towards Choi. I think Stevens likes to brawl and that's got, that's got him into trouble on more than one occasion. And I feel like if he starts getting close and swinging wild with Choi, it's going to cost him. Um, Again, maybe this is overly emotional and sentimental on my part. I'm going to go with Choi for this one, but it should at least be somewhat interesting. Uh, There's some interesting ways those two match up. Uh, Pat, I'll stick with you for this one. Jeremy Stevens and Duho Choi, uh, what do you got? You know, I think the Jeremy Stevens that we've seen in his last four to five fights 
is the best Jeremy Stevens we've seen. And I don't say that lightly. He's fought a good level of opposition. And he's turned up his game in a lot of ways since then. He may not be the puncher he's advertised to be, but he's fighting at a really high level and can arguably only have one loss in that bunch that we've seen. Um, He looked very good against Frankie Edgar. He looked really good in his last two fights, especially against Melendez. I just, you know, Choi hasn't fought somebody on this level with the exception of Swanson, and he lost to Swanson. Granted, it was a competitive fight, but Stevens has been in there with some of the best. And while Choi has some tendencies that can really trouble him, I look for the continued journey of this best Jeremy Stevens we've seen, and I like him to beat Choi. He may not finish him. I just think he's got more diversity. I think his defense has actually looked better in certain respects, which is important for this fight. And I like him to win. I I think the continued progress of Jeremy Stevens at a late stage continues. I would agree with your assessment of Stevens over his last few fights. He has looked the best he has in ever, certainly since I've been watching. All right, Jeff, what are your thoughts on this fight? Who do you think comes out on top? I'm picking Jeremy Stevens. I think this is a winnable fight for him. Duho Choi is a very good fighter, but I still consider him a prospect. Um, That fight with Cub Swanson was a wild, exciting uh, fight. But with a wild, at times, very sloppy fight. And to me, the one making all the sloppy mistakes in that fight was uh, was Duho Choi. Uh, really, and not that he's going to fight Jeremy Stevens that day. I don't consider Stevens an elite fighter either. I, I, I consider him like a very tough juryman. I think he's a tough test um, for most fighters in the division. I would say a pretty upper, I would call him an upper-level gatekeeper even. Not a contender. Not elite level. But I think Analyzing him on that level, I think this is a fight he could very well win. As Pat pointed out, the highest level fight uh, for, I guess, opponent Duho Choi ever had was Cub Swanson. And he still lost that fight, and I think he was, he was pretty much dominated in the striking by that fight. All right, uh, moving on. Oh, sorry. Do you have anything well, else? Well, I'm just saying, Stevens. Stevens, I think, gave uh, Swanson a, a tougher fight than than Choi did. So I don't know. I, I'm leaning towards Stevens by decision, but I think it will okay. be a tough fight. I'd have to rewatch Stevens and Swanson. I haven't seen that. I don't think I've seen that since it actually happened. Right, the only reason I want to bring up the next fight is because it amuses me. Um. Uriah Hall is fighting Vitor Belfort. And I don't understand. Like, I don't understand any they of really want to keep they, they really want to keep Uriah Hall on the roster. They really like him for some reason. This is the battle of, like, who's going to fold mentally the fastest. Um, and to top it all off, you know, Vitor's basically done as a fighter. Like, he barely got that win over Marquardt. He'd been finished three times in a row before that. 
And he beat Dan Henderson. He was finished by, like, Belfort still has some hand speed and some decent power, but none of the technique is there the same way it used to be. His chin is shot. He just shouldn't be fighting in the UFC. Then we have Uriah Hall, who crumbles when put in certain positions and relies on power and flashy techniques that don't work on people who know what they're doing. Um, He lost three fights in a row, was finished in two of them. Then he lost a bad first round, was able to recover and beat Christoph Yotko after... Yotko, I get why you fought the first round the way you did, but if you're going to do that, you really do need to make sure your lead hand stays in a defensive position come the second round, and he didn't. Uh, I got Hall. I got Hall all day. This fight just... Like if I I like Gallo's humor, like I like dark humor. So these two fighting does appeal to me on that level, but like beyond that, this is just bizarre and sad on so many levels. I'm taking uh, Vitor for the lols. That's all I'm gonna say. <laughs> Fair enough. Pat, you getting in on the meme train here? God, this is such a terrible fight. Um it really is. Ugh. You know, I'll pick Hall here because Hall generally folds if you put pressure on him. And I haven't seen Vitor put pressure on anybody, and I don't know when's the last time he was allowed to use CRT. Um, when he knocked out Dan. Yeah, Hall. Hall the by terrible time. decision. Hall by terrible decision in an awful fight. All right. Um, as for the rest of this card, I'm going to read the. Yeah, how about the rest of this card, huh? You're only thinking of the next fight. Probably. Uh, at women's flyweight, we have Paige Van Zant versus Jessica Rose Clark. Um, Rose Clark beat Beck Rawlings. Kind of short notice thing. This is kind of a showcase for Van Zant, who, you know, the UFC really does want to be better than she is type thing. Um, Van Zant hasn't fought in over a year. She last fought uh, Michelle Waterson in December of 16. But she's not having to cut as much weight. She's, again, moving up to flyweight. I tend to think Van Zandt probably wins this, but I wouldn't be shocked if she chokes. Um, at welterweight, we have Kamaro Usman and Emil Weber-Mech. I kind of like this fight. It's not great, but I kind of like it. I can I can dig it. Um Mech defeated Jordan Mean in his UFC debut. He knocked out Husamar Paul Harris before that in 45 seconds. I, I like Usman here. Usman's an, a very good fighter. He's an exceptional athlete, a tremendous wrestler, and he's got some power. He's been putting some some you know heat in his punches recently. I think Usman wins, and I think everyone ranked above him continues to duck him. As for the prelims, we have a featherweight bout between Darren Elkins and Michael Johnson. Uh, this is the worst tattoo in all of MMA against Michael Johnson. Um, Elkins probably loses the first round badly, because that's what he does, but Johnson fades and Elkins pushes him into the fence and either wins a decision or a stoppage once Johnson's cardio abandons him. We have James Krause versus Alex White. If you've never heard of either of these guys, I don't I kind of blame you about Kraus, but as for White, 
He's been up and down in the UFC. Um, he's one and one since returning to lightweight. He's more of a wrestler. I'll lean towards Kraus, but that might be somewhat optimistic considering Kraus can be out wrestled. Uh, we have, and this is where things get interesting. We have Matt Frivola, who I have, I don't think I've ever seen before. And Marco Polo Reyes. Um, this is kind of a gimme for Reyes after he lost. He got he got smoked by James Vick. Um, but the UFC likes him. He'll probably win that. Uh, Tiago Alves is fighting Zach Cummings. Good grief, really? Wow. Um, I'm, I might be confusing Zach Cummings with somebody else. In fact, I think I am. If Cummings is who I think he is, I am confusing him with somebody else. Okay, I'll, I'll take Cummings here, but... Is he the guy who know. pumped my gas last week? I have no idea. Uh, then on Fight Pass, so, he we did have... a terrific job. Good to know. Uh, on Fight Pass, we have Kalindra Faria, Fahea. Going with Faria versus Jessica. I. Jessica I is still on the roster. This baffles me. This this baffles me. I will take Faria just because Jessica I shouldn't be. Well, they need fighters at flyweight, and Jeff Sky wanted to move down to flyweight, and uh, they tried to get her to fight Paige Van Zant for this card. Further proof they're really trying to give Van Zant kind of a gimme. Um, at That's women's right. Bantam, at women's bantamweight, we have Toledo Bernardo and Irene Aldana. Um, Aldana really let me down in her last fight. Um, she better win this, or she'll be back in Invicta. Uh, I'll pick her to win this, but not a lot of faith there. At straw weight, we have Danielle Taylor and J.J. Aldridge. You know, for low-level straw weights, this actually isn't a terrible fight. I mean, even though Taylor is kind of more of an atom weight in terms of her physical structure. Um, and Aldridge likes to close distance so much. I'll actually go with Taylor here. And I actually, and I do kind of like Aldridge, but I'll go with Taylor. At featherweight, we have Mike Santiago and Mads Burnell. I think I've seen each of them fight a grand total of once. I'll go with Burnell. No reason whatsoever. And at bantamweight, we have Kyung Ho Kong and Guido Canetti. Um, Kong? Why has he been out? Oh, his military service just ended. Okay. Uh, yeah, he was. He last fought in 2014 when he beat uh, Michinori Tanaka. I kind of like Kong. What did Kennedy do when he did? He one and one. Uh, he beat he up. Beat, uh, he beat up Viana, didn't he? Yeah, he beat Hugo Viana. Hugo Viana kind of sucks, though. Like, really, kind of sucks. I'll go with Kong there. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the layoff's going to be interesting to see how he dealt with, but... All right. Uh, Pat, Any? Uh, I know you want to talk about Paige Van Zandt, so feel free, and then anything else you have to say about the rest of this card. Uh, this is maybe the greatest comeback in the history of sports. I just want to let everyone know that. 
um, the most incredible, uh, awe-inspiring, indescribably incredible creature to ever grace this sport, this cage, this company is making her much long-awaited return to the cage to pick up where she left off in terms of developing into a fighter who is as devastatingly vicious as she is beautiful. The one, the only Paige Van Zant, and the, and the Van Zant stands for very, very, very soundingly wowzers. That's how hot she is. I can't even come up with words that make sense. But this will be her first fight at 125 pounds after she's revealed some very personal struggles about her weight and her weight cut, um, even at times, unfortunately, resorting to anorexia, um, which is horrible. And again, shows the problems, like Jeff mentioned that before in reference, that we have with fighters who cut weight today. Um, it's getting way out of hand. Her opponent is Jessica Rose Clark, who is from Australia. She is making her return to flyweight hopefully officially this time as she was supposed to in her last fight with Beck Rawlings, but she missed weight much like when she was supposed to fight at flyweight earlier in her, in, in uh, her debut with TTF challenge, she missed weight by six pounds. So we haven't seen her really successfully make this weight and we don't know if she's going to for this fight. Combine that with a very so-so record and it looks as though the UFC is ready to come up with a plan to elevate Paige to a point where they can put her into high-profile bouts and use the fact that she is devastatingly gorgeous to draw attention and viewers and keep her winning so people will buy it. Um, and I'm perfectly okay with that. I imagine if she wins here, she will fight Nico for the flyweight title while Valentina Shevchenko plots their imminent demise. Because that's how the UFC makes matches her, these I don't see her fighting for a belt anytime soon because I think they're more aware of her limitations after seeing her fight with Michelle Watterson. You know, anybody could have lost to Rose, but seeing the fight with Michelle where she was pretty easily handled by someone she had a major size advantage on, that's very telling regardless of the weight cut. I wouldn't be surprised to just see her collect victories like this the way you see a prospect who collects victories on, you know, uh, when we used to have the Challenger series on Strike Force, and we'd ask, why don't they move this person up to a main card? Oh, because they're really limited and they want to keep them winning, so when they do move them up, they can cash in. That's what we probably have here, despite the fact that she is beyond words beautiful. All right, dial the creepy back just a little bit. All right, rest of that card, do you have anything? Uh, actually, yes, surprisingly enough. I really like the fight between Usman and Meek. Um, Meek showed me some stuff in what he could do. Uh, you beat Jordan Mean, I take notice. You knock out Pagliaris really quick, I take notice. Now, Usman is very, very good. I think he's underrated because he hasn't had that name opponent to really put him over the top in terms of showing people what he can do on that. In, in all seriousness, everyone ranked above him will duck him. That, that's not a joke. They've been yeah. ducking him for a while. Yeah, he just has not had anybody that's willing to step up and let him show what he can do on a, a high level. You know, Sergio Morais is probably the highest name 
on his resume, and that's not a uh, tremendous uh, benefit to him in any way. He, he came off the Ultimate Fighter. He's looked really good and gotten better with each passing fight. I like Usman here, but I think he will get tested at least a little bit. But, man, give this guy a, a fight with a, a name. Please force somebody in the top 15 to fight this guy because he looks like the real deal, and we want to see that. We want to see what he can do. All right, Jeff, uh, what do you have for the rest of this card? Um, Darren Elkins is fighting, and uh, Darren Elkins has been looking pretty good lately, and he's fighting um, uh, Michael Johnson. So, um, wait, is there, has, did Darren Elkins move up in weight, or is Johnson No, no, down? Johnson's going down. Johnson's cutting to, fl- to featherweight. I mean, I don't know if I love the idea of Johnson cutting, cutting down uh, featherweight to try and reinvent himself. But uh, Darren L, I mean, he definitely has his work cut out for him, making his featherweight debut against. I mean, look, Elkins may not be a contender, but he's he's uh, as tough as they come uh, at featherweight. And uh, let's not forget that uh, that stunning uh, victory he had uh, last year against uh, Mursad Bektik. That was um, that was one of the more impressive, more exciting victories in fights last year, as I recall. So uh, I'm looking forward to that, and I think I think Kraus versus Alex White could be a decent fight. So those are my main two. Kraus is, a, I, I, again, I wouldn't call him a great fighter, but I think he's pretty tough and underrated. And uh, he's won his last three, so this is, uh, I mean, this is a significant fight for him, you know, to keep that momentum going. All right. Uh, again, next Sunday I will have coverage of that in the MMA Zone of 411 Mania. I really hope that card delivers in practice because uh, I'm I'm deeply struggling to be interested on paper, but we'll see. We'll know on fight night. All right. Again, because of some of the UFC scheduling, we're also going to preview UFC 220. This is a two-fight card. Yeah, there's one other good one. And one that I have interest in personally, but I don't expect anyone else to. Let's be honest. Let's be honest, everyone. John Volante versus Francis Barroso is the people's main event. It's okay to say it. I hate you so much. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I had not seen that fight on this card. Thank you for that so much. Oh, <laughs> God, I, I hate my life. All right. Anyway, this is a very top-heavy card. And not just because the two fighters at the top are heavy men uh your main event and one that i i I like this fight i i really do i really hope it holds together we have stipe miocic versus francis Ngannou for the ufc heavyweight title miocic is trying for his third consecutive title defense which would be the new ufc record for consecutive title defenses at heavyweight it's three yay um, and he's taking on Francis Ngannou, who is a destroyer, who is, I, I gotta say this, cause this, this, the following rant is personal and reflects no one's opinion, but my own. I, I believe Francis Ngannou is the hardest puncher in MMA history that I said that after he knocked out Alistair Overeem because I thought it was accurate. 
That is my ge- that is my genuine assessment of the devastating power he brings when he puts his knuckles on you. He, the only one close is Shane Carwin, and I don't think it's, and that, again, like Shane Carwin hits stupidly hard, but I think it's Ngannou. I hate that now that I say that, it almost sounds like I'm in some way validating the stupid pseudoscience the UFC came up with about Ngannou's punching power. Because their assessment is the most asinine thing I've ever heard. When they did the press conference for this event, and Dana White was fumbling over essentially made-up statistics about how hard Nganu hits, it was comical. It was so stupid. No, no, he, he hits with so much horsepower, and it's equivalent to being struck by a car traveling at this speed. No! If you hit by a car traveling at that speed, you're probably dead. Like... It's it's and I hate the fact that because I, I agree with the assessment that yeah this guy's the hardest puncher you've ever seen. But when I agree with that conclusion, it almost makes it seem like I'm agreeing with their methodology, which is again comically inept. I just wanted to say that. Um, as for this fight, as for the fight itself, Stipe Miocic is terribly underappreciated. Miocic is an exceptional athlete. Uh, he was a two- or three-sport athlete in college. Uh, in ter- I know he did wrestling and baseball. Uh, he was a Golden Gloves-level boxer in Ohio. and a lot of re- and There are some exceptional boxers that have come out of Ohio, especially his neck of it. That's not an easy play. You want to box at the amateur level, you know, at the state level, which is essentially what Golden Gloves is in a lot of respects. There's other states you find. You don't necessarily go to Ohio. He's only lost twice in the UFC. He's only lost twice, period. He's on a five, one, two, three. Yeah, he's on a five-fight winning streak. He's finished four of those in the first round. This is a guy who puts some, who has some serious punching power of his own. And yet, no UFC champion in the history of MMA has ever defended the title more than twice, and he's now on his third defense. So He could make history. Is, yeah, but but you know what? Even if he makes history, it's still only three. You know, it's not like – we're not talking about a Demetrius Johnson or, a, or, a, or even a John Jones type of record here or an Anderson Silva. It's only three. It's not that – it's not that big. It's just that, you know, we this, this is a division – you know, where a single punch can change the whole complexion of a fight. Or, you know, you have Cain Velasquez, who's an outstanding fighter, a great quality fighter, but, you know, once he got to the title level, his body sort of quit on him. So now we just, we have, I, we have, we're in the situation where, you know, maybe Stipe could defend the title for the third time. He's right on that cup. Uh, yeah. I actually favor Stipe here. I know he's officially the underdog, and let me say I will not be shocked if Miocic be, or if Nganu beats him because, again, Francis Nganu could knock out a horse. Like, 
if you get charged by a quadruped, a large quadruped, you want Francis and Ganu standing between you and that animal because he might put it down. But there's a few things in his game that we haven't seen, and there's a few things that we have seen that we know Stipe can kind of exploit. One, Stipe hits hard. Again, this is it's being lost in the discussion about how spectacular Nganu's power is. Stipe, again, he's finished five, he's finished four guys in the first round. That's not nothing. He's he's got some heat on his punches. He's also a much better striker technically. He throws straighter punches. He's got really good footwork, which Nganu has worked hard to improve, but is still kind of a weakness in his game. He's a Golden Gloves boxer, for crying out loud. Yeah. Miocic is also a really good wrestler. Uh, he was a... Uh, was he an All-American, I seem to recall? I believe he was a Division One All-American. Feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, anybody. And we haven't seen Nganu have to fight a really good wrestler in a, ever. Like, everyone yeah, he's who's Division One at uh, at Cleveland State. Yeah. I, I again, I'm leaning towards Miocic here. I I won't be shocked if Francis wins, but Francis still swings wide. He doesn't throw a lot of straight stuff. Francis throws three and four punch combinations, which is a is a rarity at heavyweight. Like that's one of the ways he's beaten a lot of guys is. They're used to, you I'm know, we throw... I'm confidently picking the Ocics here. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm leaning... I'm just leaning Stipe, but I like this fight. It's the best heavyweight fight the UFC has had in a couple of years. And, it, again, should be a really good fight. I, I do hope it holds together. There's still a couple of weeks for something to happen, but I, I hope it holds. Uh, Pat, you pegged Stipe as a future champion some years ago. Uh, what do you think about this one? I think it's a great fight on paper. I think each guy presents problems to the other, where on the one hand, we've seen vulnerabilities that Nganu can exploit on Stipe. And in the case of vulnerabilities that are potentially there for Nganu, Stipe should on paper, have the ability to potentially exploit them. You guys both brought up the example of that. We've never seen Nganu against a very good wrestler. While Miocic does not use his wrestling all that much, it doesn't mean he's not training it. It doesn't mean it's not there for him. It means that in the fights he's had, he's felt that the ability to stand up and strike is his strength, and he's gone with that. Nganu has gone into fights, and yes, he does throw wide punches, However, if there's a liability with Stipe striking, it's that his striking defense is not that great. And he's been gotten into exchanges when it's not in his best interests. And he's been hurt by punches from guys like Junior Dos Santos and from Alistair Overeem, neither of whom, in my opinion, hits as hard punch for punch as Nganu does, nor do they put combinations together as well as Nganu does. So you have two very, very vulnerable aspects that each man can attack. Empirically, the evidence would have you lean toward Nganu because we've seen the vulnerability exploited in Miocic versus the unknown potential vulnerability in Nganu. What I like of what I've seen from both of these guys and is making me lean where I am 
in each passing fight, I've seen Francis Ngannou come in in better shape. That means that when he got into this, he had potential and he kept pushing it and he's gotten better and better and better each way along the way. We also potentially have not seen the best Ngannou that we can possibly see. Miocic has also been less active in recent years than Ngannou has. Ngannou's kept busy getting better, building. Miocic will take a big fight, take six months off, take a big fight, take six months off. That can be a very dangerous way of applying yourself at heavyweight because if you're not working hard, that bigger body gets very complacent very easy. On top of that, potential of injury, potential of a number of other things happening, I'm favoring Ngannou because what I've seen presents more empirical evidence that he can get to Miocic's vulnerability before Miocic can get to a vulnerability on him that we're not even sure he has, to be fair. And Ngannou, at some point, is going to hit him. It's all about when he does it and where he does it. If he catches Stipe Miocic within the first round, Stipe Miocic is going to get knocked out. If Miocic can use his wrestling and control of distance with better leverage to limit how hard Ngannou hits him, how close into range Ngannou gets, and if he can make Ngannou a little bit tired before landing that strike, then there's a chance he has a much better chance at surviving it. But Miocic is confident in his stand-up. He will use it, and he will try not to exchange. But ultimately, I don't believe his defense is good enough to not get clipped with at least a a stunning blow from Ngannou and then the clincher behind it. I like Ngannou, and I like him to knock him out. All right, Jeff, you said you were confidently picking Stipe. Uh, Yeah. Go ahead. What do you got? Uh, what leads you to that conclusion? Well, I mean, Francis Ngannou has never faced an opponent, I think, uh, as good as Stipe. I guess, other than maybe Alistair Overeem, look, he fought on, he fought and beat Andre Arlovsky. But at that point, Arlovsky was already 0-3 going into that fight. And after that fight, Arlovsky, I think, I think he went a total of 0-5. He did win his last fight. That was, uh, I mean, the less said like the better. Fight, Robert? Yeah, the less said that was awful. That fight, it was awful. Uh, he submitted Anthony Hamilton, knocked out uh, Bojan um, um, Mihailovich. Excuse me, Mihailovich. Mihailovich. Uh, Who's a natural two hundred five er? And uh, Luis uh, Luis Enrique. Um, let's see, uh, Mahalovic, he's, uh, lost his last three, uh, Curtis Blades, uh, he's on the upswing, he's on the upswing, um, he hasn't lost since that fight, okay, and he's fighting Mark Hunt next, so maybe a halfway decent win, Luis Enrique, um, he has gone two and two. He's lost his last two. And then, uh, who else? Anthony Hamilton. 
Uh, he's gone 0-3 since the loss to Nganu. So, yeah. I, I, I mean, did Nganu earn this shot at the title? You say, but he's which the pace, which is cardio, uh, his fasting, his stamina, like Stipe can. We know Stipe can go uh, hard five rounds and uh, not get tired like other heavyweights. We know he hits hard. I think he's a better defensive fighter. I think he's a better defensive boxer than any of Overeem's opponents. Um, excuse me, any of Angano's past opponents, including Overeem. Uh, and he's also a better wrestler. Wrestling is not, high-level wrestling in MMA is not something Ngannou has really dealt with before. And I think that is something uh, that I think that's going to be a, a huge advantage uh, in uh, Steepy's pocket for this fight. And just, you know, my gut, my gut in my head says as much as dangerous, and Nganu is dangerous, don't get me wrong. He might be one of the most dangerous fighters in UFC history. But I, I think all the factors tell me he has not faced a challenge uh, or a fighter with Stipe's skill set. And, and because of that, I'm leaning more towards Stipe. And that's why I think Stipe is going to win. Uh, but I hope it's a good fight. And, um,. And uh, it wouldn't be it wouldn't surprise me if uh, Nganu does uh, get his hands to Stipe's face and, and maybe even uh, puts Stipe on the map. But I think Stipe he can rec- he can recover from getting uh, from getting hit. We've seen it before, um, but I expect I hope it's a fight. And this is definitely I think the best heavyweight fight in UFC heavyweight title fight we've seen in a long time, at least on paper. All right, the co-main event is another title fight for a division that just makes me sad. Um, light heavyweight champion Daniel Cormier is defending the belt against future felon and Florida State resident Volkan Uzdemir. Um, sorry. Uh, I, I know Florida's going forward with felony charges against Vulcan. I, I don't mean to. I don't know if he's guilty or not. I, I genuinely don't. So, um, Cormier was last seen. He was last seen being bludgeoned by John Jones, right? Yeah, that was his last fight in July of seventeen. I, I am so struggling to care about this fight. I mean, I just don't. Um, look, Cormier's a great fighter. Uh, an all-time great light heavyweight. Probably the second best light heavyweight ever behind John. And I really struggle... Like Vulcan has a good understanding of how to generate power with his punches. He knows how to find openings. But we've seen... Oh, excuse me. We've seen harder. Uh, we've seen Cormier deal with powerful strikers, Anthony Johnson in particular, twice. Uzdemir might have faster hands than Johnson did, but he also doesn't quite have the wrestling pedigree. If Uzdemir's got a chance, it's early, but this is a significant step up in competition for Uzdemir. 
And it's not, I don't believe it's anything that Cormier hasn't already both seen and successfully dealt with. I imagine Cormier wins. I imagine very few people care. And the division continues to be just a wasteland of humanity. It is the Jeff Goldblum of divisions. Uh, Jeff, I'll stick with you for a second. What do you think about this one? Do you think Uzdemir pulls off the upset? No. I like the fight, though. I mean, Uzdemir has had a very, uh, excuse me, a very meteoric rise uh, up the ranks. Um, look what he did to Misha Serkunov and Jimmy Manawa. And Manawa at one time was looking like a, po- a very possible contender. Uh, for Cormier, um, uh, Cormier, I mean, look, he's not fighting John Jones, and that's why I think Cormier is going to win. That's very fair. Uh, Pat, what do you what do you think about this one? Again, you're the one who I, I've leaned on you a couple of times when it comes to Uzdemir because he utilizes some really weird boxing techniques or boxing punches, rather. Do you think is is there some opening that he is uniquely situated to exploit to become the first guy other than John Jones to beat Cormier? One of the things that Daniel Cormier does to evade punches uh, in in close quarters is he relies very heavily on upper body movement, um, and he's good at it. But what he doesn't always do when he does that is tuck his chin. That's why when John Jones was able to tag him inside with left hooks, he almost looked like he didn't know how to react at points because Jones saw the opening for that punch was there time and time again. You know, using upper body movement and shifting your weight away can stop a jab or a right cross from hitting you flush, but hooks and uppercuts are there for it to be exploited. Uzdemir throws a lot of hooks from a lot of weird angles, and he hits hard. But I don't believe he's going to be able to beat Daniel Cormier because I don't think Cormier is going to have a, the respect for Uzdemir that he did for Jones that led him to fight more cautiously. B, I think he knows that his bread and butter is his Olympic-level wrestling, and that's what he needs to do in order to win. But let's not go with the outside possibility that losing to John Jones again has had an effect on Daniel Cormier mentally, and he can try to justify it to himself any number of ways he had to use steroids, he was on cocaine, whatever he wants to say. The fact is he was beaten again by a guy he cannot stand and hated and talked a big game about beating and couldn't deliver. That has an effect on you mentally. I think Cormier being a competitor at the level he's been in both amateur athletics and now professional, I don't think Uzdemir is enough of an opponent to exploit that. And I think fortunately for Cormier, there's not an opponent at light heavyweight who potentially can do that except for maybe Alexander Gustafsson. Who's injured. So I expect who's injured. So I expect Cormier to win here, not look his best in winning, and not necessarily be pushed very hard. I, I appreciate Gustafsson already trying to get into Cormier's head a little bit and some of the things he said while you know, out for whatever his surgery is. All right. Since we don't have the actual lineup finalized, we're just going to do some burning desires for the rest of this card. And really, this is a top-heavy card. It is those two fights, and again, there's one other that I think is interesting, and there's one that I loosely care about because I'm weird. Yeah, uh, the there's rest two of- I like on here, too. 
And the rest of this card, we have Calvin uh, Qatar. I can't remember if he pronounces it Qatar or Cutter, but one of those two. And Shane Burgos. Uh, Burgos is undefeated and is usually good for an inter- for an entertaining fight, at least. John Volante and Francimar Barroso fight, and the crowd suffers. And that's terrible. I'm not even going to pick a winner. Uh, Thomas Almeida and Rob Font. I actually do kind of like this fight. Uh, Almeida is coming off of a loss to Jimmy Rivera. I question how much got taken out of him when Cody Garbrandt just took his head off because he beat Albert Morales, but some of that's how much has he lost. Some of that's how much did what Cody do to him, you know, further expose some of the liabilities in his game. I mean, Jimmy Rivera is no slouch. Like losing to him is not at all some huge knock. Uh, Font's got some really good technical punching, especially he's good on the ground. He lost to Pedro Munoz. It's a pretty good. Uh, I like Font's chances, but I'm probably leaning towards Almeida there. Uh, at featherweight, we have Kyle Botniak and Brandon Davis. This somewhat surprises me. Um, probably Botniak here. I just don't know the other guy. Um, Abdul Razak Al Hassan and Sabah Hamasi are getting their rematch after their very, very bad stoppage in their first fight. Uh, from very, like, not too long ago. Those two had a pretty good fight. Um, I thought Hamasi was coming on strong. I'll pick him for that one. There's a decent flyweight fight between Dustin Ortiz and Alessandre Pantoja. Uh, Pantoja's on a significant winning streak. He just beat Neil Siri. Ortiz knocked out Hector Sandoval in 15 seconds. I kind of like Ortiz there. He's Faced a higher level of competition, but I'm not sleeping on Pantoja at all. Dan, I'm going with Ig. Might be IG, but I'm going with Ig. Dan Ig and Julio Arce. Uh, Two newcomers who... I don't know. Ig. His last name's easier to say. At strawweight, Marina Morose fights Jamie Moyle. Um, Morose lost to Carlos Esparza. She probably should have lost that Taylor fight. In fact, I recall thinking she did. Moyle lost to Viviani Pereja. I'll go with Moyle. Not sold on that one. And the other fight I actually care about for random reasons. Um, Islam Makachev is fighting Glayson Tebow. This is Tebow's return after his failed drug test. Uh, when he he beat Abel Trujillo, but that win was actually overturned. And I really am kind of liking Makachev. He lost to Adriano Martins, but he's 3-1 and one in the UFC. He's on a two-fight winning streak, and I tend to think he's one that people overlook. He's a, he's a really solid fighter, and Tebow's a significant test, even at this stage of his career and coming off of that layoff. All right. Pat, you said you had a couple you care about. What do you think? What are your burning desires here? Yeah, I really like uh, Almeida versus Font. I think it's a fun fight on paper. I think Almeida has a lot of things that are good and he can build on. And I I look forward to the potential of seeing it. Um, I also really like the Pantoja-Ortiz fight. I think Pantoja is the real deal, and he can get better with more experience. 
I really look forward to seeing him and what he can do against Ortiz, who's not the best fighter, but someone who can test him. And I, I don't think those are bad fights at all. I think they'll be entertaining, if nothing else. And I look forward to both of them as long as they follow through. All right, Jeff, any burning desires from the rest of that card? Nope. Alrighty. And again, that fight will take place, uh, that card will take place on the 20th. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I will have live coverage of that one as well. Double check something. Yeah. We will be back on the 21st, and we will have a review of those two and a preview of UFC on Fox 27? 27. Uh, Jacare versus Brunson 2. This is a Fox card? (laughs) This is... Wow. That is a weak Fox card. I like Jacare, and I I like the matchup with Brunson. Like, that's a... They had a fight. Their first fight ended lopsidedly when Jacare just bludgeoned Brunson, but Brunson's a much better fighter at this point in time. But the rest of that card, I mean, your co-main event is OSP and Alir Latifi. Um, Other notable fights, Randa Marcos is fighting, Vince Pichel and... Hey! uh, I know, I, I said that because I know you like Vince. Uh... There's a fight between Mersad Bektic, who's kind of dead to me after the Elkins affair, and Godofredo Pepe. This is just not a good card. This is just not a very good card. Bobby Green and Eric Koch is probably the next most exciting fight. That's watchable. That Again, that's just not a terribly good card, especially for Fox. But hey, the... Come on, UFC. You're trying to get your rights renewed. You're going to put that up there? <laughs> we put you so. Uh, all right. So anyway, that, as far as scheduling, yeah, we'll be back on the, again, the 21st, and we'll have all that for you. Jeff, were there any major news items over the last, at the end of the year that we haven't had a chance to talk about that you think we should bring up? Um, let's see. I mean, there's this stuff with Conor McGregor. Uh, okay, well, I mean, uh, the, the UFC's vice president of athlete health and performance, Jeff Nowinski, um, expressed his belief that John Jones didn't intentionally use steroids on the Joe Rogan experience. Uh, here's what he said. It would not make a lot of sense for an individual, a UFC athlete, especially a championship contender like John Jones, who knew, untested quite regularly in this program. It would not make a lot of sense um, that that would be your drug of choice if you're trying to cheat. Uh, I guess he's referring to uh, Terenabal. I think it comes out after the fact that UFC, uh, excuse me, that USADA did another test on John a month or two months after his positive test and he was negative. So that would be indicative uh, that the prohibited substance entered his system sometime after July 7th or July 8th, and that was likely a pretty small amount, and that cleared his system uh, pretty quickly. So I don't know. I mean, that's what Jeff Nemitsky says. 
Um, um, he's not he's not saying this definitively. I think he's just speculating. I don't know if you want to make anything of that speculation, but that's what he said. Pat, you've been around a while, especially, you know, various sports. Is it wise to have a vice president or an executive editorialized like that? Because, I mean, it seems to serve no purpose other than to spin things in a in the public eye. No, it's a very bad idea, and you don't want your vice president or any executive-level t- type coming out and saying that. Um, it's really it's really damning to the promotion when you do that because now you have someone internally potentially painting you as the bad guys and skewing things in a way you don't want done on top of that, you're creating discontent within your own organization and that will lead to problems on a very high level. Furthering it, you have to understand that when you come out and make statements like that, it makes the organization look irresponsible and puts it under higher scrutiny from sanctioning bodies, from international organizations that they have to work with to do fight cards abroad. Um, And you're opening up a very large can of worms for a problem that you're creating that was already manageable. And you've decided to dig up the course and the corpse and re-exhume it. That leads to inconclusive evidence. Um, It's not a good idea on any level. It's only going to lead to more problems if it unfortunately and hopefully does not get ignored. All right. Um, Let me... uh, We only have five minutes left of live time. I could actually have scheduled this for longer. Blog Talk has improved some of the functionality in terms of how long you can be live for, but I don't want to keep everyone here forever. Um, All right. If... Let me say this. If there is no uh, official year-end awards done by 411 Mania Cup by the time we go live on the 21st, I would probably like to do at least a brief retrospective here. Uh, nothing major, just you know, highlights, lowlights, uh, you know, knockout of the year, submission of the year, etc. If you guys feel inclined to do that. Um, if not, I will I'm sorely tempted to actually write something up about that as my, because I, I want to, but I haven't in, <laughs> I haven't written anything in many, many years. So I, I'm kind of missing that a little bit, but there's something to think about. If nothing comes of that, then nothing comes of it. But I would like to maybe at least you know, have a look back at 17. If we get the time for that, might not. Uh, all right. I think that's everything. If Jeff doesn't have anything else, uh, what would you like to plug, sir? Uh, check out my review of Insidious, The Last Key. Um, one of my favorite movies of the year, Darkest Hours, starring Gary Oldman giving the performance of his lifetime as uh, Winston Churchill. Um, I'm not really a big awards person, but I would really be upset if Gary Oldman does not get best actor for that role. Cause, uh, it was truly, uh, an outstanding performance. Um, so really like that film. Next one I'm doing is Paddington two. I had a very good experience watching the film, uh, in London. And when I say London, I mean the London hotel in West Hollywood. Um, and it was good. Paddington two 
is a good it's good wholesome family entertainment uh and there's nothing wrong with that it's a very it's a cute little wholesome family movie that you can you can take your kids or your small young relatives to and you can have a nice time and i think everyone will enjoy it uh so that's uh coming up um yeah thank you guys all right jeff i'll see you in a couple of weeks all right pat anything you'd like to plug Yes, uh, just this past week on Friday, Mark Radulich and I hosted the first TV party of 2018 discussing Fuller House Season 3B. Um, one of our more interesting discussions in general, definitely the most interesting one we've had on that particular show to date. Um, it's our fourth episode highlighting the show, so there is some definitely interesting and Probably points you haven't heard brought up before about this show as it kind of matures and grows into its own in some ways. Um, so you can listen to that here on the Rattleton Broadcasting Network uh, as well. There will be a at least of some point a mini Casual Heroes reunion this coming Tuesday night uh, that will feature, if nothing else, myself and Gavin Napier, longtime contributor to 411 Mania and the Rattleton Broadcasting Network. Uh, if we can coerce our third party to be into this, it will be a draft, uh, which we've done before and had a lot of fun with and got a lot of positive feedback from. If not, it'll be myself and Gavin recapping the wrestling world in 2017 and moving into 2018. All right. As for myself, I think I only really have the coverage. Uh, Mark and I... There's no movies coming out that Mark and I felt compelled to really talk about. Uh, we won't have another Damn You Hollywood until Black Panther comes out in February. There's a real chance he and I might try to get together for a TV party about Hannibal Season 2 and the near during the following month, or I might foist some movies that I know he doesn't like on him as retribution for all the upcoming movies in 2018 that he's making me watch. Uh, beyond that, I don't. Again, like if I if there's no year-end awards from 411 officially this year, I will sit down and write out a at least my thoughts. I may not rank certain things, but certainly you know fighters from the year that I were people I think should be in that discussion, finishes of the year, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, if you are interested in that, I if anyone out there happens to. <laughs> actually listen to this and then feels like they might provide feedback on this following point. Uh, There's two ways I could format that. One would be a series of shorter articles for each essential, for basically each category. The other would just be a long one. Um, I'm curious to what you guys might prefer to read uh, as far as formatting. So feel free to tweet me at WinFreeMMA if you have a thought on that, or if we just wind up talking about it in a couple of weeks, that will be, we'll do that instead. Uh, but if again, if there's no other source for year-end stuff, I will write something because somebody asked me to. Like uh, several months ago, someone asked me to do kind of a year-end column, and I assumed that we were going to have something official. If for whatever reason that doesn't come to fruition, I will actually put fingers to keyboard and uh, try to get my thoughts on the year as a whole, best and worst. Uh, all right. On that note, thank you everyone for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, again, somewhat apologies for the schedule being a little bit wonky, but blame the UFC acquiescing to college football. So, uh, so we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, 
Again, thank you as always. Please be sure to check out Pat and Jeff at their respective locations. Uh, thank you for sharing us with your friends. Trying to grow this thing, people. So if you have friends who are into the sport, point them in my direction. Happy to try and win them over, or at least entertain them, or provide a soothing sound for their children to sleep by. I don't really care how you <laughs> utilize the, inf- the audio once you have it. Uh, that's it. Thank you again. Hopefully 2018 is better than 17, or at least not as bad as I fear it will be. And please continue to be well, be safe, and behave. Thank you.